this past year has been a really interesting year when it comes to semiconductors because some of the old, older fabs have all of a sudden become more profitable than they've ever been. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I have a couple of insights that um, uh, bear on our discussion of interest rates and inflation last week. But to get uh, just get through oil, and, and I'm probably not, not, probably not going to use more than 10 or 12 minutes because we got a bunch of stuff that, uh, that uh, Mike wants to get into, and I want Mike to get into. But on uh, just to take care of oil and gas pricing and capital markets for, uh, for energy, uh, oil's fine. Uh, remember, there's a lot of backwardation, namely the current price is 72 and the price two years from now is like off $10. That's typical in this kind of situation and should be expected. Similar for gas, and gas has been trading in the 380, 390, maybe 350 for the rest of the year. But again, uh, once you get off two years, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, barely holding $3. Those are good prices, and one of the reasons for the backwardation is the producers are selling forward, um, and they will continue to it at these kind of levels, which are high by historic standards. In terms of how the companies are faring, um, uh, they they they're starting to report earnings. Uh, the capital discipline seems to be intact. No one's overspending cash flow. Uh, I think that. Uh, if in gas, which is the way it's been behaving more interesting, uh, it's Marcellus companies. The only one that pays a dividend or any significant dividend is Cabot. They're doing a merger with Simrex. So uh, obviously, the, the people who follow these stocks don't like that merger. Uh, they'd rather have Cabot stay a one basin company. The other companies, Antero, Range, Southwestern, CNX, are all uh, are all. Uh, paying down debt rather than starting a dividend, I think a significant upward valuation will happen when they start to get to the point where they can pay dividends. Um, uh, Pioneer pays a dividend. Uh, uh, Diamondback pays a dividend. Uh, is definitely the way to go. And the, the way to think about it is the dividend should be about half your free cash flow. And as long as you can replace your production using, say, two-thirds of your cash flow, you should be able to grow your dividend Eight or ten percent a year, and and that's that's where energy companies, own gas upstream companies or midstream companies are going to distinguish themselves. With that, I'd like to move on to interest rates. Key question is, Mike and I have rehearsed a little bit of this yesterday, but key question is, the ten-year U.S. Treasury rate was one seventy-five in February, and why in the world is it down to one twenty-five? What does that mean? Does that mean that the economy is going to slow down after the recovery. Does that mean that uh, that the Delta variant uh, on a worldwide basis is going to slow economic activity? What in the world is going on? Um, I mean, the interest rate, long-term interest rate, is supposed to be the inflation rate plus one or two percent, and uh, the inflation rate in May for CPI was five percent. Now, the Federal Reserve says, and the Secretary of the Treasury says that uh, these are transitory, and in fact, they may be. 
the CPI depends. Uh, you know, one of its components is rental pricing for housing. Another is price of used cars. I mean, there are some things going on with the recovery that may cause these things to be uh, not long-lasting. But uh, how, how do we have one and a quarter uh, interest rate uh, for ten-year bonds? You know, with oh, let's say let's say some of it's transitory and some of it's not. I mean, the Federal Reserve wants us to have two percent inflation. They've said uh, a period over two percent would not be un- unwarranted. They've been more concerned about deflation. What is going on? Just I heard a scrap of conversation, uh, and I've been thinking about it. And here's my thesis, and I'll revisit this next week and the week after because. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, we'll see if this is true. Clearly, because of the, all the amount of, of, uh, deficit monetization that's going on, we have added a great deal of, uh, to our monetary basis. When the Federal Reserve buys $120 billion, $80 billion of treasury securities and $40 billion of mortgage bonds every month, uh, we are in effect, to a very large extent, monetizing our deficit. I mean, 120 times 12, that's uh, 1.5 trillion. Okay, so we're running a deficit at two, two and a half, whatever, uh, when you normalize it for, you know, COVID spending uh, running down. Um, that's monetizing our deficit. That's increasing the amount of money in our economy. Uh, maybe we have consumer price inflation or wholesale price inflation, but we definitely have asset price inflation. I mean, there's no one that any of us talks to or anyone on the phone call who thinks that that stock prices aren't higher, we don't know quite how much higher than they would be if you had, you know, a, a, a base rate in our economy of the inflation rate, say two and a half, three percent plus one or two percent. I mean if US Treasuries were four percent or four and a half or five, does anyone think that it wouldn't result in lower equity valuations. Well, here's the insight. Here's the insight. Maybe that's true of government bonds. In other words, maybe the extraordinary, you know, to cope with the pandemic and the lockdown and whatnot, of increase in supply of money, maybe uh, the 10-year treasury is uh, inflated. And um, uh, now that's that's, that's kind of like seeing the world upside down. I mean, so our, our base rate in the economy is low because we've created so much money. You know, so much money should result in inflation, which should result in a higher rate. And of course, what happens is uh, <clears throat> you can, if you're a commercial bank or a hedge fund or any kind of financial institution, borrow cheap in the repo market where money's blend overnight. And you can use that money at, say, at, say, 25 basis points or less to buy 10-year treasuries at one and a quarter and pocket 1%. Now, of course, you have risk that, uh, you're, you're, you know, something will happen in the economy. The Federal Reserve will start to, uh, do QE and, uh, and, and bond prices will start to go down and, and, and you'll lose a great deal of money with the position. But these are very active markets. And I think what's going on, and I'm not enough of an expert, I think these positions can be hedged. So it is kind of artificial, and it is a result of having a great deal of money out there. Is it sustainable? Um, don't know. You, you would, I mean, at least in February, it looked like we we're one and three quarters on our way to two or two and a half. But does the move to one and a quarter mean 
that the economy in 22 is going to be relatively weak after a strong comeback year in 21. I don't think so. I think what's happened here is that uh, because of the lockdown and the pandemic, we've had an extraordinarily aggressive monetization of our deficit. We've had much bigger deficits, and this is what we're left with. Now, we're in uncharted waters. There's nothing in the time I've been uh, active in this kind of stuff, you know, 50 years, uh, that compares to this. How this all gets resolved is a little unclear. Hopefully, it gets resolved gently rather than abruptly. Now, where's the case for being optimistic about it being getting resolved gently? Hopefully, hopefully, with the, with the Senate split 50-50 and with the Democrats in the House having only a five-vote majority, uh, hopefully what we're seeing on a day-to-day basis is basically an action. I mean, maybe it'd be very good for everyone, including everyone's political prospects for the midterm elections, if they just went on vacation uh, and didn't pass all the spending and, and let the unemployment benefits, uh, enhanced unemployment benefits run out in September. Um, this, this, this might be good for everyone. And maybe that's what will happen. Uh, will the Federal Reserve in time have to start to taper? Of course they will. Uh, how soon? Well, uh, it, you know, the, the Federal Reserve chairman and the vice chairman are running to get reappointed. Uh, obviously, the Biden administration is going to hold off on a reappointment so that they don't have something drastic happen ahead of the midterms because uh, you'll do better. The Democrats will do better going into the November 22 midterms if the economy is stronger. So we may just kind of be where we are. What do you do as an investor? Well, we'll get into this a little bit with Mike, but I think what you've got to do is you've got to look at the whole spectrum of what's going on and think what bad could happen. Now, one way to have good happen is to own companies that don't have too much debt, that have cash flow and excessive capex, that pay dividends and with an increasing dividend. Now, not every good company, I mean, three companies that uh, family, Betsy and I hold, uh, that don't pay dividends, we're very pleased with our Amazon, Alphabet, and CarMax. They don't pay dividends, but they do generate a lot of free cash flow. Um, everything else we own uh, pays a dividend that goes up every year. So that's one form of protection. But then in terms of macro things or things that you can possibly foresee or not foresee or regret foreseeing, the thing I'd like to swing into with Mike having uh, burned through, I think it's only about uh, 12 or 13 minutes, because this is a very extensive discussion that we need to have about things that didn't go bump in the night or uh, black swan events. What in the world is China doing and how much of an impact will that have? I mean, obviously, it's going to have a significant impact on Chinese companies. The Communist Chinese Party is asserting its primacy over... Uh, companies in China, no matter how big, important, no matter how strong their cash flow is. Think about the uh, ANT ad, I guess it's called, a public offering was all ready to go in Hong Kong, and then all of a sudden it wasn't going to happen. And all of a sudden, Jack Ma, you know, Alibaba, having founded this, Jack Ma owning a significant interest, all of a sudden he's more or less in house arrest. I mean, no one sees him for a couple of months. Um, the uh, 
And now they've, they've done more. And so now if you look at Alibaba and you compare Alibaba to say Amazon, I mean, they, you know, Alibaba, you know, I mean, they have the second largest economy of the world. They're dominant. I mean, they are the Amazon of China. But, you know, the thing is trading at a much lower valuation and liable to go lower. Think of Tencent. Um, uh, you know, think of, think of Baidu. Uh, think of, think of all things Chinese. Think, I don't want to scare anyone out of an Apple position. Apple just had a fantastic quarter, but hugely dependent on making everything or most everything in China. And, and with that, uh, uh, how, how, Mike, uh, forget the Chinese tech companies. How do you think tech companies, whether it be software, uh, hardware, uh, uh, chips, uh, how do you think tech companies incorporated in this country, you know, headquartered in, in the U.S., where do you think the exposure to uh, peremptory uh, uh, actions by the by 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 China, by the government of China, by the Communist Party, where, where do you see the uh, potential uh, um, uh, issues with uh, the kinds of companies that uh, that we own or want to own or follow in the tech area? Um, so it's a really good question, and it's something I've spent a lot. Of, two of my positions are are uh, directly pretty directly impacted, one of them being Apple, the other one, Taiwan Semiconductor. I, so when it comes to a variable interest entity- And, Chinese, and just to interject, interject possibly NVIDIA because NVIDIA's future plans depend on acquiring ARM and right. getting clearance to uh, acquire arms can depend on cooperation from the Chinese government. And even NVIDIA's revenue today, there's a, there's a decent amount of exposure. So where everything, every major company in the U.S. is China one way or another. Um, so I think, like you said, se segment this off of two different situations. You have the Chinese companies that have listed in the U.S. under various entity structures. Um, I think that my current perspective is those are uninvestable. Um, and they are you know, at some point that maybe they'll get so cheap that a contrarian investor will take a look at that and say that there's upside opportunity there. But what seen with the government actions against those companies and other Chinese domicile companies is that um, the Chinese government willing to do things that completely any sense from the American perspective. We have a we, we have some things about this country that are we, maybe we take for granted when placing investments overseas. Our uh, understanding of rule of law and due process and stuff like that are not necessarily given there. Um, for example, I think it was Tencent that just that had exclusive distribution rights for certain music and that's been completely dismantled. Um, so there's, there's, uh, so we see those things happening with Chinese domiciled entities. I do think it's a somewhat different game for the other countries. Um, so if I was thinking about it from a risk perspective, a Taiwanese company is probably going to have a higher amount of risk because China views Taiwan theirs. Um, than an Apple, than an American company like Apple or Nvidia is over there. Because in the case of Apple, it would be wanted to 
shut down Apple or effectively make Apple inoperable in China, which would shut down all their manufacturing. They could, but the question is, would they? I yeah, I'm 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 going to interject here. I think it's a risk for Apple, but it's a low probability. I mean, because yes. of, because Foxconn and the other factories that supply uh, uh, iPhones and 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 uh, and uh, all the other equipment um, is um, is 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 they they just kill off too many jobs. So it's it's probably not going to be in the government's interest or the Communist Party's interest to do that. But uh, if 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 Apple were somehow able to diversify its manufacturing outside of China, would that be make Apple less risky? Obviously, yes. But if you if you follow the uh, commentary that you've seen from Tim Cook and other key Apple executives, they really don't believe that they could achieve um, that, that, that diversification outside of China is, is just not likely. I mean, they'll try to put plants in Vietnam and places like that, but the logistical advantages of China just outweigh it. You know, they can they can try to reduce their dependence on China a bit, but not in any significant way. I think is what they're on the public record saying. And with that, I turn it back to Mike because he's much more familiar with it. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, just think about the 20, 30 plus years of of setting up these sorts of manufacturing arrangements in China. They've gotten really, really good at that. To get that going in Vietnam, they're probably a decade or more behind at this point. Um, I, you, you mentioned something about the 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 government's role in all this. And you, when you and I talked yesterday, we talked about um, the progressive agenda in the United States, but we, we may see China as one, one country and one communist party, but the truth is that communist party has a bunch of people, different people with different perspectives. It has the Jack Ma's of the world, and it also has our version of a progressive left. Um, there are, um, undercurrents of, uh, I think there's a saying there that says for every lamp post, there's a capitalist to hang on it. Um, and I, I can't translate that perfectly, but essentially it's an anti-capitalist, uh, perspective. So, um, so that, that is running through their culture too. And ultimately as leader of the communist party, you have to, you have to play to the populace. So he may be moving, shifting, um, his, uh, the, 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 the views of this party away from this kind of we play nice with capitalism perspective to something that maybe the populace supports a little bit more. Yeah, and with popular support, uh, Mike and I were, were saying that some of the some of the um, uh, some of the um, uh, actions that uh, uh, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, uh, you know, uh, uh, somehow flatten out the K-shaped uh, recovery where uh, people owning uh, securities and, and uh, assets and whatnot do much better than the average person. Uh, the whole kind of inequality argument, which uh, Sanders is good at making. I mean, there's no question that uh, he's got that pretty well worked out. Um, and um, that, that that 
could be uh, motivating uh, the leadership and the Communist Party to move in this direction, because while it, it doesn't get high marks for being a democracy, still they 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 want to be in a situation where way more than half of all the uh, inhabitants of China think that they're being well governed, and um, so uh, I think I think predicting these kind of shifts or trying to anticipate these kind of uh, uh, events uh, is, uh, you know, can be done. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's uh, you, you, you can't invest based on it, but you certainly can look at if, if you're following the strategy of only owning a dozen companies, maybe a couple of research positions, please, please, please look through those companies and think about the impact of, of, of kind of populism worldwide, not just in our country. And I think that, that most, you know, Mike and I are not China experts, but it's just, it's just quite likely that that's what's motivating the leadership of the Communist Party here. And, um, and, uh, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, out and about in our country and, uh, you know, I think you can, you know, you, 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 you need to look at the, the companies you own, the dozen companies you own or so, and, and see, are they going to be better off or worse off or impacted at all by, uh, more, um, more kind of progressive kinds of, uh, uh activities that, you know, in whatever country, uh, you know, where you have a significant exposure, whether, you know, you're manufacturing the things that are like Apple or have, significant amount of your revenues and, and gross margin and whatnot from most countries. Um, Mike, what, what, what do you, in terms of, an, I mean, is NVIDIA a good company without ARM? Yes. Uh, is, uh, is NVIDIA um, uh, going to be better off if they can complete the ARM acquisition and get the regulatory approvals they need, primarily, as I understand it, from the UK and China? Uh, uh, they will be better off. Is it a disaster if they can't pull it off? No. But what, what's your assessment now of, of, uh, you know, they, I think they predicted a closing in January or February of next year. What's your, what's your, what's your, what's your belief now or how, how would you handicap that, uh, uh, you know, here six or seven months away? I, I'm not even going to attempt to try to say anything different than what the company is saying. Honestly, I, uh, you know, there's enough articles that will say that there's no chance that we'll have it done by February and others that think that they will, that I think that it's a shot in the dark. Um, there's, there's a lot of players involved that have, um, that have more information from the inner workings of those legal systems and the, and whatnot than, than I do. But I will say there was, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of the earnings uh, calls are happening this week. So um, an interesting tidbit came out of the MediaTek, um, the MediaTek earnings call. And I don't know if you remember how um, Qualcomm came in very much against this deal. Um, and, uh, and then later offered to invest in ARM as like basically trying to say like, we want ARM to be independent. Um, so MediaTek, back to MediaTek, MediaTek is designing a system on a chip that is likely to be the first systems on a chip, first uh, mobile phone processor to be better than Qualcomm's. 
is going to be on Taiwan Semiconductor's 4 nanometer. It'll actually beat Apple to the 4 nanometer. Um, interesting thing about that, this chip, while it will be very good, is going to struggle when it comes to graphics because they'll be utilizing ARM's graphics. And Qualcomm has their own graphics, which are superior to ARM's. Um, and for that reason, Qualcomm will probably maintain its leadership position for the high end of the mobile phone market until other people people have options in this market. And that will happen. ARM gets acquired by NVIDIA and starts putting some of their graphics technology through ARM. So, you know, people that say that it's anti-competitive, I think would be you got There's a lot of layers to peel back to see like why, who's who's on what side. But this was an interesting tidbit of like, oh, here's here's why Qualcomm's on the side that they're they're on, um, and what the impact is on the market ultimately. So I mean, that's pro competitive if uh, if uh, you know if Absolutely. the own transaction goes through, and obviously the reason Qualcomm is uh, is against it. Um, the uh, I just want to speak before we finish. Uh, we've been talking about China and uh, Taiwan Semiconductor is, uh, you know, Mike owns in his partnership. And uh, uh, I, I um, try whenever I run into people, uh, you know, in energy business and are going and comings to see whether anyone has any kind of um, uh, capability of, um, uh, you know, trying to, you know, trying to see. Uh, how uh, how um, uh, the Chinese military uh, could um, you know invade or or pressure or what have you Taiwan and what, what I'm hearing a lot of these people in the energy business for whatever reason do you know 15 20 year stints in the, in the U.S. military and then and then go into the energy business so I've run into a couple of them recently and. It's it's very interesting, and when I run into someone with that background, I always ask them, you know, how if you know realizing how important it would be for China to have their own chip capability, and there it is, you know, just uh, across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and what I'm hearing is uh, pretty difficult to do from a military point of view um, for the Chinese military. And when you think of what is in their best interest from a commercial point of view in terms of advancing, uh, you know, having building their positions in, in strategic businesses. Um, it would be a mixed bag if they were able to, uh, obtain control of Taiwan, you know, with a military invasion because, um, the, the, um, the, the brain drain, I mean, the, 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 these people that work at Taiwan Semiconductor are uh, are 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 very valuable. I mean, they would they would get asylum anywhere, uh, and uh, so uh, I think from an overall kind of trying to build their industry capability, they're better off not doing a military invasion and simply trying to use pressure, however they can, to have. Um, uh, you know, the same access to the technology in Taiwan, especially uh, uh, in chips, 
uh, that that uh, the U.S. has or Europe has, and uh, and um, so in in thinking about that particular business or or just technology in Taiwan, uh, while I think there's some sure there's some risks that you know you'd have a substantial uh, disaster on your hands in terms of your equity investment if a military event took place. I, I think it's really a way uh, low probability, maybe under one in 10. Uh, what is more likely is continued involvement to try to, by the, the mainland government in China, trying to pressure Taiwan and develop more of a, uh, you know, make, you know, try to, try to get the same access to the technology that everyone else in the world has, I think is a more likely outcome. But with that, I, Turn it, turn it back to Mike to uh, finish us up this afternoon. My, my personal perspective is that I don't think it will be a, a, a physical war. I think I think we're already sort of in this cold war as it is. With as a, I think of it as a war of semiconductors, not necessarily thought for semiconductors, but more or less with semiconductors as far as um, hacking and whatnot. So there's two pieces of it from the Taiwan perspective to mainline China, I think. And one of that is the hacking and stealing data and information. The other side is a pop, it's a popular movement. Is Can they see, sow the seeds of the Communist Party in Taiwan so that they want to be part of it? Um, and that would be way less painful and way, way more difficult for um, the Americans or British or whoever to, um, to, to mention, uh, mentioning the British, they, they've already offered asylum to anybody in Hong Kong. Um, so the, the precedent's been set that the asylum will be offered. We'll continue with this next, next week, uh, unless there's uh, intervening events. Uh, we haven't covered the earnings, but um, next week we'll, we'll have some commentary on, on the tech company earnings and we'll have the NVIDIA earnings. Uh, and in the meantime, everyone, um, be well, stay healthy, and, um, and we'll talk next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.